listeners at home, if you can hear uh, anything weird in the background, it's just the sweet, sweet clothing washing machine. <laughs> and it loves it. Every time I put clothes inside of it, it's like, oh, oh my goodness, for me? I'll have a little more, if possible. That's what it says. That's what it says, folks. And it's immoral, but that's what we have to live with. Degenerate, the the the, the, the <laughs> degeneracies of home appliances. Uh, no, it's it is disgusting, and we're we're quite angry about what's happening. Anger, sexual lust, the sorts of things that you experience when you're playing a video game. All these concepts originated with Karl Marx. How's life in, uh, you know, the, the land of freedom, America, caca? <laughs> it's the same levels of weird, uh, lots of shootings. Um, so that's fun. Mm-hmm. You got to do yeah, that. There's been that keeps the freedom juice several going. Sh- yeah, I several think. shootings just to remind everybody. Um, uh, of what it's like, um, <laughs> uh, just you know, going to the mall or going to the store um, in the United States. No, but otherwise, I I'm fine. The <laughs> weather's nice. Aside from the true horrors, uh, you know, pretty good. Pretty uh, yeah, good. Yeah, the weather the weather's nice. I spent all weekend outside. What am I gonna do? Complain about that? Oh man. Oh man, it, no! It has been gorgeous, even here in uh, uh, the King King Charlie's own United uh, Kingdom. Right. Uh, he got coronated, and this caused the sun to shine. Um, kind of, kind of a Stalin figure, you know. He implores the clouds not to rain, except we don't. We're not concerned about the harvest because we're, you know, we have sort of a service-based economy now. So that's quite nice. Um, unless, of course, you have to work in any of the businesses that someone like me might arrive at. I uh, have they arrested everybody for not uh plead pledging their allegiance to the boy king, the the old man boy king. The old man boy king. Um yeah, and then the the met, the 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 London piggies, they um they released a statement being like, yeah, you know, it was pretty heavy-handed, but it was an important day, so we think it was fine that we did that. And I was like, that's cool. That's cool that they can just like escalate what a reasonable response is, just kind of based on, you know, vibes, vibes of the day. The, 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 if there's anything that we will discuss today in particular, it's the, um, the, the ethical utility of vibes in our current moment and how important they are to, you know, the very important ends that we're currently justifying our means with. Yeah, today's the sponsor of today's show, as it, unironically and completely honestly, the sponsor of today's show is utilitarianism. Um, and you will all hear why <laughs> across <laughs> across multiple segments, which is, you know, is a, is a bit of, um, I would say, creepy serendipity, but really it's just the gamer singularity exercising itself. Making itself known. Absolutely. And what we're all going to learn is that ethical philosophy, not a thing. Not real. <sighs> yeah. I've yep. never... Yeah. Ethics are fake as fuck. Kinda. Um, yeah. No, there's a... Yeah, no, they'll, they'll, they'll hear all about it. All, of, all about the, the politics of rapture. Yeah, but we're not talking about that. We can't talk about Bioshock yet. What do you? What the fuck? You, listen, here at Agab, we don't talk about the video game of the day um, until ideally the last ten percent of the episode. It's a ratio. It's a ratio that we've been trying to it's maintain. A ratio. It's like when you have a two-stroke engine and you have to do like 50, 50 to one gasoline and the oil. Um. The game is the oil in our in our two-stroke engine, and the gasoline is all of our brilliant ideas and thoughts and feelings and dreams. This is such a good metaphor. I'm feeling really optimistic about it. 
that's kind of the other thing we do here is really good metaphors <laughs> um and they never get weird <laughs> uh speaking of getting weird um have you seen the video game succession at all yeah i'm uh almost completely uh caught up i think we're uh, like a few episodes behind oh nice i'm i'm a bit behind i think i'm in the middle of season three um but we're we're making we're making pace through it i would say it's the most well-constructed bad show i've ever seen um maybe not bad just like mid kind of fucking boring um but it's i just feel like the craft is at such a level where it just keeps me watching. Um, I swear I might have said this on a previous episode. Literally the I last episode that we recorded, we spent an extended period. Did of we talk time. about succession? We did talk about succession, but <laughs> we can just talk about more succession. Yeah, fuck you all. I'm doing it yeah, again. Keep, keep um, going. It's like... Yeah, MILF Watch 2023. We got to keep an eye <laughs> on, on what's going on in succession. Um, I mean, we probably covered all the bases. We probably talked about um, uh, the the Culkin guy. Yeah, and how he's the he's best because he's, he's the a main little, Culkin. Because he's a little, because he's, he's a little, he's a little fucking he's pervert. A little monster. He's wonderful. Yeah, his literally all of his dialogue is perfect. Kiernan and Macaulay, those are the names of the Culkins. Can you imagine having two children and naming them Kiernan and Macaulay? fucked up is man kiernan with another n i thought it was kieran is he kieran no fuck i don't fucking know if he's kiernan i think we need it's to Kieran. find kieran oh it's kieran okay i, don't know. I was i, I was about to name. call the for kid, domestic the kid terrorism from pretty bad the, there the kid from father of the bride <laughs> that's what i know him from and now as as the little uh disgusting demon from this rich fake family and he's great honestly he's yeah great. He is so perfect for the role. Um, everyone in it is kind of perfect. Um, I've been really enjoying uh, how effectively it uses ambiguity. Like at the end of, um, I think it's at the end of season two before Kendall, um, in the last sort of moments of the episode, he you know changes the public statement he's going to make about the cruise mm -hmm. thing. Um, and he clearly makes that decision because of a discussion he has with his father in like, you know, a scene or two before, but there's like two or three different things you could argue are what made him change his mind. And you can't, you, you can't, it's not, it's not written like a lot of TV shows where there'd be this, you know, the moment that he changes the mind and uh, his mind and there would be a beat and you, you clearly identify Logan said X. So now Kendall's going to do Y. Um, you know, he, uh, in that conversation, Logan, um, belittles him for not being ruthless enough. He deploys the, you know, no real person involved language that I think was a really good touch in that season. And kind of highlights how like deeply inhuman this whole thing is. And yeah, you could say either one motivated what happened next. Yeah. There's like their ability to be just purely of the social phenomena that led to their particular neurosis and their, their family construction uh, like this element of the social and all of the psychological i think is incredible especially one and how it renders the like people have so much money it renders all of their sort of happenings as very ordinary in so many ways and then also because they these are people who have like never had sex they don't <laughs> yeah. they, like they're so like they're they're related to each other somehow but they've like they don't have they don't have sex they like they barely like none of their relationships are sexed relationships it's all like defined by the social in a like supra sexual kind of way in that all of their sexuality is articulated from their like inability to have sex which is the result of their sort of place in production it's very interesting when you think about it. it's like yeah of course none of these people can fuck they don't like they don't know what any of that means um, no that would be way too human yeah <laughs> i love that um shiv and tom keep kind of trying to fuck but they just can't yeah not why really. would they it doesn't happen although um my partner and I, we've been watching it and we 
with increasing frequency, uh, I've said aloud to each other whenever Tom and Greg are in a scene, like, are these two going to fuck? <laughs> <laughs> what's going And I've got a season and a half to go, so, you know, we'll, you know, who, who knows what's going on? Uh, it, uh, there may be listeners going, yeah, yeah, they're going to fuck. <laughs> it's going to be fucked up. Um, and it's, you know, if they do, it's going to be weird. They can't have not capable of, of normal sex. I just feel like the sexual tension between those two is so much stronger than between Tom and Shiv. And it's so funny. Absolutely. And it's just wonderful. That's just how, it, that's just like, and it's because it has a clear, like subordinate, like, but are in like also earnest, like configuration in their relationship. They're like, Greg is desperately, not just desperately trying to like, hold on to the life that he grew up with because he got cut out of his um, grandfather's will. But also, <laughs> uh, but he truly wants to be like these people, which is mm. an incredible thing to want to like observe, to look at all the stuff around you and then be like, yeah, okay, this is, this is what I have to do or what I'm supposed to do. Um, he's so like honest. Um, it just makes sense. Um, then in the performance, I think generally the Greg character, um, as well as the Tom character too, which like Tom is like cucked as hell, but he's also <laughs> a fucking psycho. That's why the Tom Greg relationship is important because Tom's a fucking psycho. Yeah. He's a killer. Like, Oh yeah, he's just also profoundly cucked, um, but he makes consistently smart decisions throughout the series. Not always perfect, but he seems to figure out how to like preserve himself, considering the fact that no one fucking likes him, uh, including his wife. Uh, it's really interesting. That, that's why I think Succession is good, is because yeah, as TV, it reads as this kind of like sometimes its pacing can be kind of weird. Um, sometimes it like, you know, it has that thing of particularly new shows, but this might have been more common on HBO before. I can't remember, but it's episodes don't have, they're not consistently the same length. I guess that's probably true of other HBO shows, but like some episodes are longer than others. And that's because it feels like it's a, not to give secession too much credit, but like, it's because it feels like it's written more like theater. Um, which is why I think a lot of these like, relationships that the, the fact that it's also profoundly domestic but also so social um really sticks out and makes it interesting uh, i do on on sort of thinking about tom he's a character i've really warmed up to lately because i don't know how he he vacillates between you know using like people as footrests and stuff <laughs> and just being an absolute fucking anti-social mutant and then just like having maybe sincere like emotional vulnerability with his wife and just being like you know i i think i regret marrying you and stuff yeah. and it's like it's just wonderful they're having they're having a an interesting time in the most recent season um, i won't obviously won't spoil it um but uh their dynamic has been uh, challenged and changed in interesting ways that I have actually found. The most recent season is okay. There's I've I've felt relatively uneven about some uh, some parts of it, but their relationship is very very interesting. And I wasn't like sold as their their relationship being the most interesting part of a. Uh, earlier season so uh, again i would say succession is just kind of all right there's some really interesting things about it but it's not like a show i would i would sing the praises of from the rooftops yeah. it's just uh what i've been watching lately so i won't shut up about it um relatedly i did a really um i did sort of i don't know what to call it watch party i guess a friend of mine had not seen the following three movies that i thought were really like connected um so we watched in one sitting uh, The Raid, mm. the first John Wick, and Pig. 
And I think that's the ideal way to experience all three of those films. Um, cause I think they completely develop into each other really naturally. Like John wick, obviously out of the raid is just, this is a slightly smoothed over Hollywood interpretation of pretty much the same movie. Um, and both of them fucking rule. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hadn't seen the first John Wick in years, and going back to it, I was like, this is so much better than all the sequels. Like, I think all those movies are very fun, but the first one, I, th- I think, go back and watch it if you haven't seen it in a while. I think it is far and away the best John Wick, even though it doesn't have Lawrence Fishburne, and we that's a lot of movies suffer from that. It's not good, <laughs> but it does have um, Willem Dafoe, so... But then I think John Wick into Pig is really the key thing because pig is structurally identical i would say to john wick um but the content obviously of of what's happening in a given scene is completely opposite to it and i think they were really aware of that because in the marketing for pig um have you seen pig you've seen pig oh yeah i've seen fucking pig right okay in the marketing for pig um they really pulled from the scene where he goes to like an underground like uh kitchen like hospitality worker right. um like fight club thing yeah uh which is a very small part of the movie and it feels like it's there specifically to fake you out because the advertising of the film made it seem like this was going to be John Wick but it's Nick Cage being a weird murder hobo um and I mean, that got me in the door. I was like, I will absolutely watch that. I, I, I love watching this man be a little freak. Let's see what he does. Uh, and instead, it's probably top five, one of the you know five best movies I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, the most gentle, like, honest, like, really gripping performance I've seen from Nick Cage in a series of very good Nicolas Cage movies that have come out over the past, you know, I think seven years now. Or whatever, like... I heard him say a little while ago that his favorite film he's done is Pig. Um, I think he also said Mandy is one of his favorites. And I feel like he is keenly aware when he's in a piece of shit where he's just having fun with it. And when he's in, like, a good movie. Um, And you see a very different Nick, depending. Like, the guy in Pig is not the guy in, I don't know, Vampire's Kiss. But I, I love how... You can line it up perfectly to John Wick, pretty much. And every time John Wick would have, you know, a sequence where he murders 30 guys, instead, uh, Pigman has just like a a really sincere emotional connection with another human being. <laughs> yeah, cha- he challenges them in a like a like a way a way of being that's like scary for people. Like the like he like. Yeah. He presents a, and he he presents himself as this encounter with a a part of people's humanity that may not be familiar to them. It was his directorial debut. The kid who made that fucking movie. It was his first. Movie. Really, it was his first fucking movie. I'm 99 percent sure that's insane, dude. I'm 99 percent sure. I have to double check right now. Yeah, uh, double check that. That's just, but that's nuts. I know, I'm pretty sure that's the fucking cage. Yeah, feature directorial debut. So he probably did like a short film or something like that. That's amazing. Michael uh, Michael Sarnowski. He's doing a uh, a Quiet Place movie. That's interesting. A spinoff prequel in the third overall installment to the A Quiet Place movies, which I have molten lava fucking takes about are there maybe not because everyone always ends up agreeing those are profoundly pro life movies like they're aggressively Is- pro life. That's the movie where Jim from The Office has yes. to not make any noise because yeah. of creatures. He also right? wrote and directed them. Uh, yeah, um, and he stars in it with his wife. Um, what's her fucking face? And that's where they have to preserve a future for the white race or something. <laughs> it's very. It's just very, very, very pro-life. Um, yeah, it's an interest. It, it's interesting to see a very pro-life horror movie. I didn't see the sequel. I'm not gonna lie. Um, I, I did not know that the sequel was out. Even yeah, yeah. There's well, been, there was one that came out a few years ago. But yeah, Pigman, uh, Mister Sarnowski, um, or Sarnowski, uh, is a 
talented filmmaker. It was a good ass motherfucking movie. Yeah, to be honest, I will watch if 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 he makes a, a quiet place movie, I'll fucking watch it. Yeah, uh, I, I'll follow this guy where he goes. Um, after Pig, holy shit. Um, I've I've been putting it off. Um, at some point, I've got to make a movie, a non movie, <laughs> a video about Pig. Ooh, um, yeah. it just merits a more long form discussion. Uh, it's it's incredible what it says about like uh you know the uh, capitalization. I guess of things like cooking, uh, what it says about gender in these spaces. It's just, there's so much going on in. Yeah. It's a movie about masculinity. Like, Oh, absolutely. Um, but, and it's really important that it's, it's also about the restaurant industry yeah. because like professional kitchens are a very masculine space, uh-huh. despite this being considered like feminine work, um, outside of the professional setting. Right. Um, and the movie is about masculinity, but it's also incredibly preoccupied with women, with femininity, with mm. especially the absence of of feminine influences. Um, you don't even see most women in the movie's faces directly. Usually they're out of focus. They're out of frame. Um, they're never really near the men in the movie. They meet at a restaurant called Eurydice. Uh huh. <laughs> That's so like, come on, like it's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's not the most subtle film. No, and um, good. I'm so glad that it's not. It like, yeah, it, it, it it's it's not subtle, but it's very soft. And like that's is, really yeah. important for like if a, if you're making your movie for the boys and it's a little critical, but it also at like it has to it has to. It has to treat these issues the way that it did. It's such a good movie. Absolutely. I, I think there is subtlety in the performances in a way I really yep. like admire. Um, I think one of my favorite performances in any movie is, I don't remember the name of the character or the actor, but like the dad, um, you know, the final boss of the movie, the guy who was the one who took the pig ultimately, um, the dad of the young guy who's yep. with Nick Cage's character the whole time. Just the as he takes his first bites of the meal that they make for him and, and smells the wine, just like the incredible emotional, like breaking down that he communicates just through like facial expression, um, I think is an insanely good performance. And it kind of reminded me actually to its credit um, of a scene in, I want to say season two of succession, when uh kendall and shiv have maybe their first like private conversation since kendall you know fucking gets a kid killed Mm. um well sort of you know he's sort of complicit um and and he just tells her like no i'm not i'm not gonna be the next big boy it's not gonna be me uh and they just like hug and you can see this like dawning realization on her face that this is like a real human moment she's experiencing Mm -hmm. not just another weird layer of power plays and I found that so powerful because these people in this show are pseudo humans. They're not real fucking people. Yeah. Um, but you do get, but you know, they are people and you get these moments of humanity that shine through them. And it's always almost like jarring. It's almost wrong um, because that's not supposed to be there. But of course it's there. Um, art is good sometimes. Maybe. I don't know if that's <laughs> controversial to say, but then again, Sometimes it's really, really bad. Yeah. And that would have been a great pivot into the game, but there's something we should talk about <laughs> first. <laughs> Listen, we're not here to give you the perfect pivots into this isn't the radio. This is the Wild West of podcasting. We'll talk about movies that we've already talked about after talking about shows that we already talked about. Um, <laughs> and you'll fucking like it. Yeah, um, now it's time for a half hour on Boss Baby. Um, <laughs> uh, no, there's an article that uh, we simply must discuss because I think it really is relevant to the game we'll be talking about soon. Yeah, um, and our our side careers as uh, artists on YouTube.com in particular. Yeah, and as someone who puts a lot of time and effort into, um, I like to think, fairly thoughtful video essays, uh, 
I love the things that are successful on the platform, which is mostly the most dead-eyed white dudes you've ever seen in your life. Um, just like soy facing at a car. Um, and then they have a little entourage that I, I guess kind of clap and maybe like shed their skin and reveal their insect forms at some point. I, I don't, I, I don't watch these videos. Um, but the maybe biggest YouTuber, I don't know. Mr. Beast, uh, is buying an entire neighborhood for his employees to live in. He's putting together a little company town. It's just, it's a company town. It's, <laughs> it's this, this new fun trend of, uh, rich people um reinventing stuff from the 19th century um <laughs> it's amazing it's really it's really it's really stellar par excellence utilitarian capitalism yeah no it's great um there's a a couple things in the article i i want to sort of highlight the first is just the picture because it looks it might be it looks like a mr beast thumbnail they nailed that <laughs> yeah it's perfect it's just him with a smile that does not reach his eyes in front of like a, a house with a, a sold s sticker over the for sale sign. Um, okay, so in the article it says uh, he's buying up this whole fucking street, uh, but there remains just one holdout house, which Donaldson's former neighbor attributed to the family likely wanting uh, their kids to finish school, says the Post. Um, so this guy's the entire street that this guy and his, you know, kids probably grew up on uh is fucking vanished and is full of like weird youtube entourage people uh who are probably just like milling around the perimeter of his property at all hours of the night just waiting waiting for him to fuck off uh so i bet that's a really cool life that he has well i i want to first of all also shout out the articles author ashley barden um, at Kotaku, which is where we're pulling from because, and now this is probably just one of those like old man moments that I have mostly on this podcast. Um, uh -huh. when I, <laughs> Mr. Beast became popular because he filmed himself counting to a hundred thousand. That's, I did not, I did not fucking know. I did not know that. This guy just kind of appeared. What I know this the Mr. Beast guy from is uh first Squid Game. That's when I first heard of Senor Beast. But his popularity is because he counted to a hundred thousand. I didn't know that. That's I all. I'm gonna be honest, I also did not know that before this article. So apparently that video went viral in twenty seventeen. Um, and has, has received 28 million views. I don't know. That's one of those things where it's hard to comprehend the things that people are interested in. Like I would never click on a video like that. That sounds pretty boring. It sounds like the second you've heard the concept, you get what the video would be and you don't need to watch it. But, uh, millions of people seem to disagree and they, they want to see, they want to see a guy count in a chair for hours. Yeah, Mr. Beast does this like weird. I mean, I can, I can like, now that I know about the accounting to 100,000 video, I can actually kind of see even more clearly the onus behind some of the thumbnails that I'm looking at here. A hundred boys versus a hundred <laughs> girls for $500,000. I gave my 100 millionth subscriber an island and like, it's like this guy's insane looking thumbnails i've been dunked on enough i don't need to say anything about <laughs> um his whole shtick is like look at all the money that i control what am i gonna do with it next make you dance for content probably yeah and then i mean like he just it's it's interesting how that like the capitalist has to innovate themselves, um, considering new social environments and cultural contexts, but that they keep mm -hmm. doing the same fucking shit over and over again, which is like, so like the, like, if we want to go to the, into, into industrialization, like, like there's always been charitable rich people. 
This is not it's not a new idea. The like altruistic, you know, out capitalist thing, um, who supports the arts and like has been around for a really long time. One of the most famous Americans ever, Andrew Carnegie, was incredibly generous in particularly in the arts. Um, you know who's really generous when it comes to like the music and the f- music and the fine arts is the fucking Coke family. Um, oh yeah, they bankroll a lot of, and then they also buy endowed chairs at universities in economics departments to make sure that those people teach Ayn Rand. Um, it's like really, and now yeah, we have like a company town, which is just like it's all produced under the guise of like company towns were produced under the guise of like social welfare. Like, right. They would set up shit in a company town under the guise of social welfare and like that it was, you know, quote unquote, protecting laborers by like housing them um, next to like the like extractive industrial work sites that they were underpaid and overworked at like yeah it's a scam it's a scam that people just who can't and that but now it's being laundered i guess because it's all just going to be for mr beast's friends but at the same time those are just the people that you see like who work in you know beast nation or what the fuck ever like whatever you it's important to think about all the people that you don't see um when it comes to whatever the fuck this asshole is up to um because fuck him this guy has like he has like 50 million dollars and he like like fuck people who have that much money at all fuck people who have earned it in the way that they did and also fuck people who walk around and stick cameras in people's faces you know like the perpetual need to film everything is probably my the least favorite uh, characteristic I have about Mr. Beast. And that's saying a lot because he's wealthy and I hate fucking rich people. But man, like, what an annoying way to be a person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I a mean, bizarre way to be a human being. I think that's the, the thing that really makes him stick out to me is that he is deeply, as a human being, annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i mean have you like heard him speak in a video ever <laughs> no i would not recommend it he geez, there's a type of demon that becomes like big millionaire youtuber guy and they're all made in the same fucking lab i'll tell you that right now mm-hmm. i want to play a video i'm just gonna do it <laughs> i'm so sorry i'm so sorry to everyone <laughs> I locked all these kids in cubes and put them in onesies. A hundred kids versus a hundred adults for five hundred thousand dollars. It's so weird, man. It's so now, like bad too. The future is fucking. This stupid. setup feels more like a Jeffrey Epstein type scenario <laughs> than what I would expect from Mr. Beast. So I guess he's branching out a bit. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what to say about Mr. Beast besides call him weird, weird way to be a person, man. The thing about these types of I'm I'm not even sure how to describe them, but these these types of workplaces that are very uh, usually they'll they'll be at least adjacent to creative sectors. Um, they'll be in what's generally considered kind of unconventional fields. Like, you know, not a lot of people work professionally as like a YouTuber. And that's not only their like living, but quite a good living off of that. In this, in Mr. B's case, a ridiculous living. Um, and so being connected to that, I think these types of industries are really vulnerable to the sort of, we're not a company, we're a family rhetoric. Um, especially when... A lot of these big creators have like entourages who there's this conceit that these people are their friends, um, even though they are very much their employees. 
Yeah. Uh, they are very much there for the money because there is so much money moving around. And it does just kind of give me cult vibes once they start moving them into the same community. It's like, you know, we're not a company. We're a family and we all live together. It reminds me you of know, Nexium. The Nexium. Nexium is the <laughs> that's the it's the it's the weird cult that the guy just went to the founder just went to jail and they all it was all founded on this um idea of like executive it was like it was like like business it was marketed toward professionals and it was like professional mm. development seminars that just like Again, here comes the same theme that it's just brainwashing, but with like in like managerial speak, um, literally, it's just like they would just do brainwashing. <laughs> but they were very popular, and there was like Hollywood people who they made a bunch of HBO. Speaking of HBO, they made a bunch of HBO documentaries about it um, called The Vow. Um, I think I've completely missed this whole thing. I, I missed a primo cult. Oh, I'm not a, up to date on my cults. Oh, it was a whole thing. Really interesting. Oh. Um, yeah, the uh, um, it remind because they all so the <laughs> the guy who founded this cult who yes was turning it turned out to be having sex with everybody. Um, really? Yeah, shocker. I know. Um, he <laughs> it's one of the funniest things about him. I think he was just from Albany. So he built into like his whole like vision of his weird culty organiza business organization that like he said Albany is the Rome of North America. Albany, New York. <laughs> yep. No, that's it's, true. It's like no, no, it's <laughs> fucking not. Holy shit. Have you ever been to Albany? Like, oh my god, that's the funniest fucking thing. The fact that he got people to move to Albany like using that justification not just like you know this is where the headquarters are <laughs> or whatever but like no this is this is the new rome um i mean listen he said incredible. it's rome he didn't say what year okay it's so good uh, albany <laughs> is the rome of north america it's like bro oh my God. i'm gonna start saying that i think that's true <laughs> i believe that in my heart he called himself vanguard it made everyone call him Vanguard, mm -hmm. and it was all specifically because he played a video game. There's a an arcade cabinet called Vanguard, and then this guy he like he not like, because he's, he's still a student of Lenin. No, exactly, he's not a Leninist. Um, that would be a fun twist on this <laughs> if they turned out to be like the. Symbionese People's Liberation, the Symbionese Liberation Army, or whatever the, <laughs> the people who kidnapped what's her face, Patty Hearst. Um, I don't even remember, but you know what? I support them. Anyone who's kidnapping, I'm I'm up for it. I think it's it's a fun bit just to like take a person. <laughs> they did just gotta hand it to them. They just just grabbed it. They're like this. Her dad had a newspaper, and they're like. Yeah, we're just going to take you um, and then make a series of demands. They all, they all first kidnapped someone and then started robbing banks. Really interesting. That rules. Um, that's kind of a weird order to me. I feel like you'd go for the bank first. Um, uh, they did I a mean, political... Before all of that, it was they did a political assassination. So Now, that... I don't know. This really feels like working backwards. Um Although, I mean, come on, political assassinations, who among us hasn't done a couple of those? Mm. That's not that impressive, I guess. Well, that's not. We could, we could maybe kidnap people for money. <laughs> Do you think that's what the pod does now? Uh, find out behind the paywall at <laughs> patreon.com slash agabpod. Um, We're going to confess to several crimes. I think before that, we can use a my mention of this symbionese liberation army and also all the other times that i talked about brainwashing to transition into this the the true subject of our discussion today oh you mean hit game bioshock 2 one um, yes one videoed game called bioshock 2 if the world were reborn in your image would it be paradise or perdition Ha <laughs> ha! 
subtitle Marxism, more like Marx isn't. How about that? Mm. Yeah. That's what they called it. Um, so this game is kind of this feels like the ultimate liberal sequel because Bioshock 1, of course, came at objectivism. It came at a lot of these intellectual strains of like hyper individualist, like right wing libertarianism. Um so the next game has to come at um I was gonna say has to come at communism, but I feel like it what it really is doing and I don't know if you agree with this, but I feel like it it has attempted to almost depoliticize collectivism. I feel like there is so little talk of any like substantial aspect of of class or of, of many of the main ideas in Marxism, and all that's really left is somebody who has not read but has heard of 1984 kind of trying to form a critique of collectivist ideology. Do you think that's fair to say? Yes, I do. And I think it's the main theme of Bioshock 2 centers around its primary antagonist, Sophia Lamb, um, who is- Nothing to read into with that name. The ins and outs of the um, ideological landscape of this game, we should call it, is a complete fucking shit show. Um, <laughs> and it's even crazier than I remember it initially being. Uh, it's not coherent in any no. way. It's like just in the same way that like now our first discussion of Bioshock happened um, several decades ago. Um, it was our third episode, I believe. Um, and thus everything that we say today, you don't even have to go. You can go back and listen to it, but you don't even have to because everything we say today is totally going to map one to one on that um, episode. Because mm -hmm. I remember everything that I said. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to, it's all going to agree with each other. So don't even worry about it. Um, oh, thank goodness. Cause I don't. Yeah. <laughs> just trust, <laughs> just trust me. Yeah. I totally, I totally remember. No, but, uh, um, what, what this, this game is, a, it attempts to put a few things in conversation with each other that like, in some ways start to become interesting but then like completely fail because basically as you said it doesn't the game doesn't really know what it's talking about um the main antagonist of a game is a psychiatrist basically a clinical psychiatrist um that is putting forward this kind of so-called utopian ideology that um comes to recognize a common good in the like sort of internal configurations of people, basically a theory of the subject that places like the ultimate ideological good in the reconfiguration, reconfiguration of that subject toward um, uh, in a positive way. And I guess kind of toward collectivist means is a big question mark as to how that has <laughs> necessarily yeah. occurred. It's that, but it's this weird bastardization of parts of, utopian theory that has like from its very definition um utopia is a place that does not exist utopos no place um and so a lot of utopian writers and thinkers have tried to sort of fill in what exactly that means if it just means as like a warning against the collectivist and atheistic um, world in thomas moore's original book um mm -hmm. or if it's uh, some particular condition of change over time in the case of like a Marxist utopian, like Ernst Bloch. Um, yeah, this game doesn't understand any of that, but instead replaces it with what is much, in my opinion, closer to the former Trotskyist uh, methods of quote unquote, social, social, quote unquote, social psychology. That's just fucking brainwashing. But as they call it, so-called ego stripping this mm. game is also set in 1968 i just want to take a second and point that detail out which i find very interesting considering its emphasis on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy as a they use like she uh the sophia lamb literally says the word social social psychiatry in the game yeah which is like this element on the one hand of like there's a freudo marxism for Freudo Marxist turn within European Marxism that was very significant and that 
incorporated big elements of the Frankfurt School and theories of the influential post-68 thinker Hubert Marcuse, um, who incorporated things like the repressive hypothesis and stuff, the whatever you think of it. Um, very influential stuff in books like Eros and Civilization and the One Dimensional Man. Um, again, all of this in conversation around the, the years of 1968, both influenced by and influ in influence of. Um, then you have stru and structuralism and all of this other sort of like conditions and influence of productive relations as it manifests in ideology um, and in the configuration of the subject. Um, Boy, if someone who had actually understood any of that wanted to make like a weird <laughs> psycho villain out of like a, a Freudo Marxist villain, I'd play the shit out of that game for the that record. That would be so good. Would that not be the best? Um, I would love that. The, 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 like to close out my, you know, essay, uh -huh. um, what this game does in contrast, centering around the figure of Sophia Lamb, um, my review, if you will, um, is it places it within the, conversation around moral ethics and the debate between utilitarianism and deontological ethics. Um, on the one hand, this uh, character of Sophia Lamb was influenced as in game supposedly by the utilitarian views um, of her father. Um, they talk about John Stuart Mill a lot, but um, she attempts to combine this and the developers talked about how like, Mill and Marx were the like main influences for the creation of this character. Um, yeah. And I'm like, it just sounds more like, like inform former Trotskyists to me uh, personally. Um, <laughs> but this idea that like the Marxism supports this utilitarian form of ethics or a, a closed system of ethics at all rather than a self-realized form of egalitarianism so utilitarian ethics is the ends justifying the means to put this all very simply and deontological ethic ethics follow immanuel kant which are which do not see the ends justifying the means and are often are in like pursuit of um what is true yeah. Um the idea that we should we should can and should be true even when it causes pain, which would be contrary to um utilitarianism's consequentialist thinking. Um I I I think this self-realized form of egalitarianism can't be reduced to these questions of ethical concerns. Alienation is a primary result of production and capitalism reveals uh, more fully and clearly the sort of um, production of subjectivity mm -hmm. and that what Marxist psychoanalysis actually did was put forward that uh, maxim that we should be true even when it causes pain because the most fundamental truths may appear alien to us. Um, mm -hmm. So <laughs> yeah, this game instead with its main character uh, with this main villain puts forward a weird nonsense gobbledygook soup of a combination of uh, uh, structural Marxism, Freudo Marxism, and the, the ideology of May of 1968. There's a lot of graffiti that reminded me that reminded me of like 68ers. What someone who like someone who like has heard a three sentence summary of what happened in Paris in May of 1968 thought the graffiti would say <laughs> yeah, some examples we are, but we are, but the stone to pave the wall. That's the opposite of what the 68ers said. They were talking about like underneath the streets are the, is the beach. Like that's, that's what the six, like, yeah, like, no, that's not. So it's like this, it's like anti-communist and it's like anti-Soviet. It's in it's in that binary between like the libertarianism of the first game and like the like again, it's like perfect foil in Soviet Russia and the Soviet Union. Um and then on the other hand, it incorporates psychoanalysis and psychotherapy, um, which is this other sort of distinct element. Um and then it argues for a <laughs> all of that is because of utilitarian ethics 
It's just like, dude, no, that's not wrong. Wrong. Sorry. No, that's not how any of that stuff works. So, yeah. No. Uh, and it's interesting because there's different flavors of anti-communist sort of narratives. You know, yeah. you've got your economic arguments. You've got arguments that kind of want to sidestep the entire question by just saying, oh, there was so much violence. Therefore, I don't even have to think about it. Stalin killed eight trillion people. Uh, he had a big spoon and ate all the grain. Therefore, we we can't even think about communism. Um, but this is the not unheard of, but I think more rarely seen these days approach, which is to take this sort of brainwashing. It's like a cult slash it's like a religion approach to Marxism mm -hmm. that I think. I don't think anyone, you know, no serious person, I think, really comes out with anymore, but you do still hear from time to time. And it's one of my favorites because it is fundamentally nervous about the idea of having a worldview um, that isn't that that hasn't been naturalized by the dominant ideology. The people who make these arguments think they don't have an ideological position. Because it is the presence of the position that to them immediately starts ringing alarm bells, uh, immediately starts feeling like weird indoctrination is happening. And I think something that's really interesting, because I think these arguments lend themselves to these uh, very idealist approaches that almost have nothing whatsoever to say about Marxism. Um And I think that's really seen in Sophia Lamb's big plan, which... Correct me if I'm misremembering this, but I believe the plan is to use Adam, the magic juice in this universe, to put into Eleanor's brain the, and I forget if it's it's the knowledge or outright the consciousnesses of everyone in Rapture. Yeah. It's to make her this sort of hive mind, uh, because the, the big critique... I don't know if I should say the big critique, but I think the first critique that will generally get levied against utilitarianism from a Kantian is if you're presuming to do some sort of a hedonic calculus to figure out which action will you know create the most happiness, um, that's assuming a level of knowledge you can't possibly have. You know, it's the classic response to the trolley problem. You know, what if the one guy on that track is about to cure cancer or what if the five on the other track are all serial killers, right? Um it's requiring this almost omnipotence to really make these calculations in a way that realistically you, you just won't have that level of certainty. Yep. Um, and so her plan feels like, okay, we'll solve that um, by creating this like omni mind, right? In Eleanor. And, and again, this sidesteps all discussion of, of class of anything material of pretty much anything that Marx concerns himself with. Um, so I find that to be a very interesting approach, I guess, for uh, trying to, you know, take a shot at Marxism, really. It's just like, yeah, I read Marx and Marx is just Jeremy Bentham. It's this, <laughs> it's this weird, like, it's like, yeah, if I, once I have my hive mind, then we can do all of the internal reformation of the self, the internal reforming and rehabilitating apparatus is this hive mind instead of just the prison, which is funny because like all of that actually tracks when you think about the story where Sophia Lamb was imprisoned, like by, and, oh, then, shit. and then she eventually takes over what's his fucking face's she turns him into a big daddy at the end. Um, uh, Sinclair. Uh, Sinclair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who, Sinclair has all, he's a capitalist who is actually one of the good ones, right? Like, he wasn't, like, he wasn't mm -hmm. a, a complete Randian psycho. He was just kind of like, you know, hustling, if you will. Um, yeah. Which, uh, and, who ended up building the detention and corrections facilities for Rapture, the Persephone, right? Um, and then... The va the value that's being sort of like the 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 very primary and discrete like data set of human being that's supposed to be that's represented by like this child hive mind um like mechanism of control 
like i mean if you if you think about it the right way it could be yeah that's pretty it's pretty utilitarian uh <laughs> what yeah, it's totally. not it, it, it like it's in you know in a, a discipline a, a disciplinary apparatus that forces us to internalize mechanisms of control uh you know for you know you know the the for our own lack of certainty and if we're being watched and actually being policed like yeah like and it it's just like that's not that's not marxism <laughs> no <laughs> that's that's a different thing um so you know again like you know yeah but like i think that's the main problem right is that this the fixed system of ethics that's supposedly coming from this crazy lady's beliefs and is and then the writers are just like yeah you know we were thinking a lot about marxism during this it's just like bro come on <laughs> like, like, <laughs> let's not like i don't think you had a consultant on this one that helped you like you know sort of rein in a lot i think simply that's what that's that's probably what makes it the most interesting about it because like at the end of the day um like i enjoyed replaying bioshock 2 because of that kind of like to look at the slurry, you know, the cultural slurry, the the ideological soup, um, and less about uh, and, and and less for sort of like living in that world again through the sequel to the game because I just you know if I'm gonna if I if I if I want to be like driven insane by playing a, a new playthrough I will actually uh, play Infinite because of the stories. Ugh. It's well, listen, it's crazy. It, Infinite is a story for uh, another episode, mm -hmm. to be sure. Um, we will have a lot to fucking say about Bioshock Infinite when that dark day comes. Um, the thing I always enjoy about revisiting 2 is how much more grating Sophia Lamb gets every time. Because <laughs> at a point, she's just reciting her weird poetry to you, and <laughs> she goes on. And I feel like there was something kind of funny about how deranged Andrew Ryan was, whereas I feel like she's got this, everything she says is delivered with this, oh, don't you hate how, like, certain I am in my being an ideologue. Like, it's the character that uh, an epic enlightened centrist creates to get mad at. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and she's so, like, smug about it. Yeah. <laughs> And it kind of rules, but also it is a bit like, I kind of wish I could skip some of the dialogue. <laughs> yeah, it tried, like, I, oh, you know what I will say? The thing that I like the most about revisiting the Bioshock games in general um, is in my, like, old manish sort of attitude when it comes to a lot of games these days is I mm -hmm. am... I treat them like museums where I have like shooting simulators in between them. I'm, I'm looking for audio logs um, and I'm listening to them and then I'm sightseeing and I'm looking at the yeah. stuff on the wall. Um, and there's a lot of like shit to listen to slash read. Um, and that's just like, that's what I want. I want shit to read. I want to walk around in a thing and read stuff um, and lots of dialogue um i've always liked that kind of a thing you know but at the same time i've i found myself being drawn to those elements um that do get repetitive eventually um but at the same time having a like a an, an actiony you know combining some horror elements and an actiony dystopian you know underwater first person shooter and then mm -hmm. also being able to like you know have this the sort of meta material be interesting um is always refreshing i like that yeah i think i'm fundamentally bored of anything that falls under the archetype of wouldn't it be terrible if we followed this political idea wouldn't that make the world so bad um because it, I think it necessarily comes from this sort of self-satisfied, oh, I don't do politics, I do facts and logic type of mentality. Mm -hmm. Even when it's attacking something that I agree is dog shit, like in the case of the first Bioshock game, it is a bit like, oh, you're so smart. You're so much smarter than dumb little Andrew Ryan, aren't you, game writers? Um, 
And I just, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm very tired of it as a way of discussing ideology, I guess, um, by giving these extremes of what you think would be a bad ideology to follow. I don't think that's really, I think you can see the way that's kind of polluted sort of mainstream political discourse. Um, I feel like people, when they talk about politics, are often pulling more from things they've seen in fucking movies a lot of the time than what they, what I think anyway, they should be pulling from, which is maybe their immediate material concerns, things like that. Um, and that worries me a lot because I think these types of stories are so ubiquitous in our culture. And I think they really serve to hinder political thought and discussion in our class, uh, quite a bit more than they actually aid it a lot of the time. I don't see that as an inherently discrete concept for utopian or dystopian fiction, though. I think that's basically all fiction is the thing. I I think there I've read smart utopias and, and smart dystopias that are more contemporary. Yeah. I've seen them in television shows and in video games when they're actually put together fairly well. Mm-hmm. But that's because they have this own mechanism of self. They have this own sense of criticality. Um, they're often more inward facing than they are outward facing. And they're honestly, they're just more intelligent. Yeah. Like it's the problem with Bioshock. I don't think necessarily is that it has, it, it follows the, um, is, is, is that it follows the sort of like an extremes of political ideology. The problem is that it doesn't know what it's criticizing. I mean, that is definitely the problem in this case. I guess yeah. I'm just saying for me, I'm, I'm fucking sick of it, man. Okay. I'm, I'm sick of this type of thing. I, I feel I've, I don't know. I feel like I've done it. I feel like I've seen it done well. I've seen it done poorly. I would I would like a new idea, and I'm going to work on that in the lab. See if it's possible to have a new idea at all. Disco um, Elysium is a dystopia that followed the logical conclusions of a particular set of political ideas. The only d- difference is that it's, ba- it's based off of a world that they actually created and not a random assemblage of aesthetic signifiers and like two books that someone half read. So that's my, I I think the response has already been made. Um, I think that might be why I'm feeling so sick of it. I think it's because I played Disco Elysium and I saw, I guess I saw the potential of this kind of thing. And I feel like even a lot of the intelligent and well-made approaches to this don't do that. Yeah. Um, I I would say people should go, man. People should read Eminent Domain by Carl Neville. Yes. Read that book. Absolutely. Um, that's a utopian story. Yeah. Um, he wrote a dystopian novel too, but um, they're modernist and they're imperfect. Um, and then play Disco Elysium instead. Um, yeah, boo, we hate modernity. Don't <laughs> worry about that. <laughs> right. I think we... Yeah, we're just over an hour. I think we're about done for this episode. Um, If you want to get behind the paywall, we will be discussing uh, crimes that we've committed, first of all. Yes. And also, I've got some things to say about uh, eugenics in the Bioshock games and how that's used in Bioshock 2. Isn't that exciting? Maybe, Maybe I'll say Ubermensch and everyone will be like, oh, look, you've read a book. No, I have an idiot. I just listen to lots of podcasts all the time. I yeah. can't read. No, sign, no. Sign up still, to the Patreon. Don't learn to read. I'm going to learn how to read behind the paywall. Um, I do not guarantee that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for listening. Um, you can find me on Twitter and YouTube at K and Skittles. Um, I've got a new video coming out soon. Don't you worry. It's going to be a tasty little treat for you. Uh, where can they find you, Kyle? You can find me um, uh, shoved in a forest in New England somewhere. Um, and also at Labor Kyle on platforms, if you'd like. But mostly behind the paywall at patreon.com slash agabpod. That's where I'll be living for the foreseeable future. Hell Yeah. I'm realizing, I think, the past couple episodes, we just have not introduced the podcast. Uh, It's kind of a free-flowing, structureless sort of thing. It's sort of an anarchist podcast. We're very enlightened (laughs) in our... We're kind of... Yeah, we're in this, like... 
you know, it's a very kind of like save the turtles type of um, vibe around here. I have no idea what that means, but I agree. Good night, everyone. Hippies. All gamers are bastards. Ah, ravioli. Ah, mamma mia.